0: Chapter 8 of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Angelisi. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter 8 The Undramatic Drama. Section 1. There are many indications that the time has come for a revision of those traditional definitions of the drama which we have inherited from a long line of critics stretching all the way from Aristotle down to Brunetière. A critical formula can never be fixed and final like a proposition in geometry. The critic derives a principle inductively from the analysis of many works of art which exhibit a family relation to one another. This principle may subsequently be applied in a logical process of deduction, to the measurement of the other works of art created in imitation or in emulation of those from which the formula was originally inferred. But any attempt to impose this principle upon another group of works of art created in expression of a totally different impulse would be illogical and, as a consequence, uncritical. Thus, a critic of the tragedies of Shakespeare would properly infer the principle that the chief incidents in a tragic story should be acted on the stage. But a critic of the tragedies of Racine would be required to infer the contrary principle that the chief incidents in a tragic story should be imagined off the stage. Such fluctuating principles as these have been altered, easily and unreluctantly, from age to age. But there are a few formulas which have been repeated, with apparent soundness for so many centuries that they appear as obstacles in the path of critics with whom pragmatism is not a native and instinctive mood of mind one of these is aristotle's dictum that action is the prime essential of a play this ancient critic stated that the method of the drama is to exhibit character in action so far as i recall no subsequent critic has ever ventured to argue against this assertion and yet if we accept it as a dogma what are we to do with such a play as mr stanley houghton's hindle wakes this work is undeniably a masterpiece according to its kind because it reminds us vividly of life and tells us something that is new and true yet it is almost utterly devoid of action its method is not to exhibit character in action but to reveal character through dialogue what to repeat shall be done with such a play It would surely be a cowardly recourse to beg this question by labeling this interesting and admirable work with such an adjective as undramatic. Another statement of Aristotle's that has always been accepted without argument is that the plot of a play should exhibit a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yet, if we regard this statement as a dogma, what are we to do with such a play as Mr. Granville Barker's The Madras House? This piece reveals no definite beginning, and the author has deliberately planned it in such a way that it shall show no end. Structurally, this work is, so to speak, a succession of four middles. The final stage direction reads, She doesn't finish, for really there is no end to the subject. And then the curtain falls, to cut us off from our momentary participation in a dozen lives which are considered as continuous and as undetermined as our own. Shall we dare to dismiss such a fabric as unstructural after it has entertained us for two hours with this activity of one of the keenest intellects at present working for the English theater? Less than a hundred years ago, the successful German playwright Gustav Freytag wrote a book on the technique of the drama, in which he asserted that a dramatic plot may be divided into five successive sections, namely, the exposition, the rise the climax the fall and the catastrophe he induced this principle mainly from a study of the plays of shakespeare a study in which he was hampered by the assumption which has subsequently been disproved that shakespeare planned his plays in five acts instead of an uncounted series of scenes this formula of Freytag's has attained a popular currency that is astonishingly wide, and yet, if we should attempt to support it as a dogma, what could we do with such a play as Mr. Gowworthy's The Pigeon? This piece, from the outset to the end, is merely an exposition of a problem of society. It reveals no rise, no climax, no fall, and no catastrophe yet it is a very interesting play that has been accepted by the most intelligent citizens of London and New York as one of the most moving dramas of recent years. It was only 20 years ago that the late Ferdinand Brunetier announced his famous principle that the essential element of drama is a struggle between human wills. This statement was at once accepted as an axiom, it has been repeated from mouth to mouth so many thousand times, especially in such popular phrases as dramatic conflict, that very few people realize at present that this formula is not at least as old as Aristotle. Until very recently, there have been none so bold to do this principal irreverence, and the formula, no struggle, no drama, has been accepted as a commonplace of dramatic criticism. Yet, if we receive this statement as a dogma, what are we to do with such a play as Chains by Miss Elizabeth Baker? This piece exhibits not an assertion, but a negation of human wills. It presents, at most, a struggle of wills with a minus sign in front of them. The entire point of the play is that nothing can happen to the characters. Their wills are paralyzed by an environment which renders them incapable of self-assertion. Yet few plays of recent years have stirred an audience so deeply to a realization of life. In his manual of craftsmanship entitled Playmaking, that bold and pioneering critic Mr. William Archer has devoted a very interesting chapter to a discussion of the intrinsic meaning of the terms dramatic and undramatic. He has bravely rejected the formula of Brunetier as inapplicable to many famous instances. Discarding conflict as essential to the drama, Mr. Archer has suggested in its stead the element of crisis. In this point, he seems to follow Robert Louis Stevenson, who referred to the drama as dealing with those great passionate crises of existence where duty and inclination come nobly to the grapple. Yet I do not think it would be difficult to convince so open-minded a critic as Mr. Archer that the element of crisis is no more indispensable to a genuinely interesting drama than the element of conflict. Where, for instance, is there any crisis in the Madras house, which, if I remember rightly, Mr. Archer much admired? Where is the element of crisis in the pigeon, and where, after the very first minute of the action, is there any crisis in the great adventure? In the face of these negations of even the most modest effort to advance a dogma, it would seem that the only course for the critic is to retreat to the position thus admirably put by Mr. Archer. The only really valid definition of the dramatic is any representation of imaginary personages which is capable of interesting an average audience assembled in a theater. Any further attempt to limit the content of the term dramatic is simply the expression of an opinion that such and such forms of representation will not be found to interest an audience, and this opinion may always be rebutted by experiment. The fact that, in recent years, every attempt to limit the content of the term dramatic has been rebutted by experiment must be accepted as an evidence that we are living in a very rigorous period of dramatic art. No playwright is so indisputably a creative artist as one who can send the critics back to their studies to revise their definitions of the drama. The attitude of such an artist may be phrased familiarly as follows. You tell me that such and such a process has never yet been followed in the drama. Very well, I will show you that it can be followed with both artistic and popular success. If, after this assumed assertion, the creative artist fails in his endeavor, his failure may be taken as evidence of an inviolability of the principle he has assaulted. But if he succeeds, there could be no other recourse for the critic than to discard the ancient formula and to induce a new one. But this necessity is repugnant to the type of critic who hates to change his mind. In this epilogue to Fanny's first play, Mr. Bernard Shaw has introduced a critic of this type in the figure of the ultra-Aristotelian Mr. Trotter. Of the later works of Mr. Shaw and many of his emulators, Mr. Trotters simply and definitively says, they are not plays. He is willing to consider them as essays, as discussions, or as conversations, but he will not consider them as plays since Aristotle never saw the like of them. But this view of Mr. Trotters seems unnecessarily narrow. Surely, as Mr. Archer has stated, Any story presented by actors on a stage, which interests an audience, cannot be denied the name of drama. One might as logically look a lion in the eyes and tell him he was not a lion. And if only an action that is motivated by a struggle of the wills can be labeled with the adjective dramatic, let us, by all means, hasten to admit that there is such a thing as undramatic drama this playful contradiction in terms affords the critic a convenient label to apply to many modern works which while violating at several points the traditional canons of dramatic criticism have evoked an enthusiastic response from audiences of more than usual intelligence if we smilingly apply these works the paradoxical adjective undramatic This pleasant exercise of whimsicality should be taken as a tribute to the author's skill in stretching the traditional limitations of the drama to force them to encompass something strange and new. Section 2. An effort to achieve a new type of undramatic drama has made itself apparent very recently in the works of several of the younger realistic writers of Great Britain and this effort has already assumed such important proportions that it constitutes one of the most interesting movements of the contemporary theater. Among the writers who have contributed to this new movement are Granville Barker, John Galsworthy, John Macefield, Elizabeth Baker, MacDonald Hastings, Stanley Houghtons, Githa Sowerby, and Arnold Bennett these authors differ markedly from one another in the mood and message of their plays but they exhibit a surprising agreement in their revolutionary manner of attacking the technical traditions of the stage it is apparently their purpose to carry the drama more nearly into accord with actuality than it has ever been before by the expedient of ignoring the tradition of the well-made play Instead of attempting further to perfect the pattern of playmaking, which has been handed down from scribe through Dumas, Phils, and Ibsen to Sir Arthur Pinero and Mr. Henry Arthur Jones, they have chosen to discard the pattern and to adopt a method of construction more closely in accordance with the modesty of nature. They do not build their stories to a climax at the close of the penultimate act for they disdain the easy emphasis of curtain falls and desire to avoid any artificial heightening of a single favored incident. They seem to disagree with the immemorial axiom of Aristotle that a play should have a beginning, a middle, and an end, for they admit only that the drama must exhibit the middle of an action. Their plays begin almost anywhere, and often do not end at all. We feel, and the authors desire us to feel, that they might have stopped an act sooner or written 10 acts more. By deliberately avoiding a conclusion, and by starting the story at a point which presupposes innumerable antecedent causes, these authors seek to imitate the drift of life itself, which exhibits no beginnings and no endings, but only an appalling continuity. Nature is neither selective of events nor logical in the arrangement of them, but without selection and arrangement, it is impossible to make a plot. In this dilemma, the apostles of the undramatic drama prefer to side with nature and are willing, whenever necessary, to get along without a plot. In order to remove attention from the element of plot, they cast entire emphasis upon the element of character. Character is all they care about, and provided that their imaginary people are representative and real, they do not deem it indispensable that they shall reveal themselves in terms of action. They even undertake to extend the province of the drama by including in their place such unassertive characters as have always been regarded hitherto as undramatic. They refuse to restrict the drama to an exhibition of a struggle between human wills resulting necessarily in action and often choose instead to exhibit a deadlock between human wills that results in the negation of action. Such characters as these, when exhibited upon the stage, must reveal themselves mainly through the medium of dialogue. What they think and what they feel must express itself more through what they are heard to say than through what they are seen to do. The plays of the new realists are therefore less visual and more auditory in their appeal than the majority of our contemporary dramas. It appears that these young authors might have taken for their motto that striking phrase of Stevenson's in a letter to Mr. Henry James, death to the optic nerve. By their reliance upon dialogue as the essential factor of their plays, they seem to be seeking what may be called a return to literature. Their dialogue is masterly, it has to be, for their plays appeal so little to the eye that the audience is required to listen closely to the spoken words. What now shall be said concerning these departures from the practice of the greatest playwrights of the elder generation? Much, upon the one hand, may be said against them. The endeavor of the new realists is based upon the assumption that life itself is more dramatic than any theatrical selection and arrangement of events. They therefore exercise their artistry in an effort to conceal the fact that the drama is different from nature, but if the effort were ever perfectly successful, the drama would cease to have a reason for existence, and the only logical consequence would be an abolition of the theater. It would seem, as a matter of principle, that there can scarcely be a fruitful future for a movement, if extended to the utmost, would result in the reducio ad absurdum but on the other hand if we judge the apostles of the new realism less by their ultimate aims than by their present achievements we must admit that they are rendering a very useful service by holding the mirror up to many interesting contrasts between human characters which have hitherto been ignored in the theatre merely because they would not fit neatly into the pattern of the well-made play And in presenting their unconventional material, these young authors have succeeded in producing an astonishing impression of reality. By suggesting the potential intensity of a static situation, they often achieve an effect that is more profoundly moving than if they had made the stage noisy with alarums and excursions. Even a critic who might disagree with their theories could not fail to recognize and to admire the extraordinary talents of these authors. Because of the sincerity of their respect for life and the seriousness of their endeavor to represent it faithfully, they have already earned a high rank upon the roster of contemporary dramatists. End of chapter 8. Recording by Sarah Angelisi.